So this morning we're going to take a little bit of a different approach to framing our Easter message and even our Easter um, service, because we're going to think about Easter today through the framework of astronomy, which you didn't see coming, did you? <laughs> now you may be asking yourself the question, Thomas, do you know much about astronomy? And the answer to that would be, no, I don't. Nope, not at all. In fact, if we were outside and we could see the stars at night, my knowledge of astronomy consists of that sometimes I can find a dipper. I know there's two of them. There's a big one and a little one. Uh, I've never been able to find them both in the sky at the same time, so I'm not certain when I see a dipper which one it is because I can't compare the two to each other. But sometimes I can find a dipper. So you may be asking yourself the question, and it's a very valid question, Thomas, if you don't know anything about astronomy, why would you not just base a sermon on that, but an Easter sermon, nonetheless? <laughs> and the reason is because I learned something about astronomy through this individual. This is Dr. Bob Williams. He is a renowned astronomer. And for today's purposes, the thing that I want you to know about him is in 1995, he made a very important discovery. Now, what happened in 1995 was a brand new telescope had just been unveiled, the Hubble telescope that allowed human beings to see further into space than ever before. And it was so powerful and allowed us to study so much that hadn't been seen that astronomers from around the world uh, had petitions that they made, requests to get time using the Hubble telescope. And they went through these requests and denied some of them and accepted some of them. And Dr. Williams was one who was accepted. He was given two weeks time to use the Hubble telescope. It was controversial. People at the time, other astronomers actually protested him being given two weeks, not because of him. He was a very renowned astronomer. The reason that they protested was because of the nature of his request. His request, and to you Seinfeld fans out here, this should sound familiar, was to study nothing. <laughs> Everybody else was studying something. They were studying a planet, they were studying a system, uh, a galaxy that they knew about, they were studying the, uh, a cluster of stars. His proposal was to study nothing. Specifically, a, a little strip in the sky that is completely dark, is completely black not just to our eye, but to all telescopes that human beings had invented before. No matter what device you had to look through it, this strip of the sky was totally dark. And so Dr. Uh, Williams, his uh, idea was to find out, is total darkness actual total darkness or not? So over two weeks, he had the use of this telescope. He pointed it at this kind of uh, place of nothingness in the sky. And then he uh, was able to develop and put the pictures together in one image. And when it was developed, in those 343 images that he took were put together, this is what was shown. Galaxy after galaxy after galaxy that human beings had never known were there before. What Dr. Williams taught us is that total darkness may not actually be total darkness that there actually may be light that we just haven't been able to detect yet. I'd like you to keep that in mind as a framework for how to think about Easter this year. And I'd like you to keep it in mind as we read our Easter text for today from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. 
Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, because, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabunai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not touch me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray no matter who we are or how we gather here today, whatever doubts, whatever dreams, whatever hopes, whatever beliefs, whatever questions we have, that we would encounter your gospel, your good news today. And it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, Dr. Williams' discovery was really getting at the idea of, is there such a thing as total darkness, totally the absence of light? And the idea of the contrast of light and darkness is very central to Christianity. Some of us might associate it more with Advent and Christmas Eve than we do with Easter. Uh, one of the more meaningful times of the year for many of us is when we take candles and hold them aloft on Christmas Eve and sing the song Silent Night. But the themes of light and darkness run throughout Scripture, and they are a part of Holy Week, and they're a part of Easter. If you were with us on Friday as we recognized and worshipped at the, the crucifixion, the Good Friday service, it was a tenebrae service. And what that means is, as we read the story, uh, light was eventually distinct, uh, uh, lower and lower in the sanctuary. Candles were blown out in the sanctuary, till at the very end when we read about Jesus being laid in a tomb, this sanctuary was completely dark and eerily quiet and almost tomb-like. The darkness was an important part of us recognizing what took place that day. We see darkness in this story, literal darkness. Mary Magdalene shows up at the tomb before the sun was up. Some of us were here that early this morning. Um, this is service three of 680 that we're doing at Covenant uh, on Easter. 
But it was dark when these events took place, and there was a spiritual, emotional darkness for Jesus' followers that is real in this passage. Their lives are crushed. They, you got to think about these disciples. They had given up everything. They had given up their families. They had given up their hometowns. They had given up their jobs, all to follow Jesus. Not saying he was a really nice guy, not saying that he was a really wise teacher, but in the belief that he was the Savior, the Messiah from God. They went in on Palm Sunday, as Alan reminded us about in the story, and it was like public affirmation of what they had known for years as the crowd shouted for the coming of the king. And then things just turned so quickly. One of their own betrays Jesus. The crowds turn on Jesus. They watch him arrested. He doesn't do anything about it. They watch him tortured. They watch him nailed to a tree and die. Everything that their lives have stood for are now shrouded in darkness and in loss and in confusion. They are so much in despair that when Mary Magdalene, who does not believe in the resurrection at this point, runs to them and says, the tomb is empty and Jesus' body isn't there, nine of the 11 do nothing. They don't go to see what's happening. They are feeling hopeless in this time. Maybe there's somebody here who has felt that way at some point in your life before. Maybe some of you feel that way today. I'm not even certain how to move forward. That's where we find the disciples, in that kind of darkness. But it's in darkness that a body begins to breathe. And a spark of light, we realize, is there. That total darkness, in the end, isn't actually totally dark. I love this verse eight, uh, when the disciples show up and it says that they go in and it says that they believe even though they don't have understanding, which I think is actually really honest. I, I wouldn't trust anybody who says I can explain every detail of the resurrection and the mystery. that There is a mystery to this that is part of the power of it, but that doesn't mean we can't believe. I wonder what, how you walk in here today. Do you believe? Or are you here because someone's going to get really mad at you if you didn't go to church today? Are you here because you were promised a good lunch after the service or it's family tradition or you just like the brass or, you know, whatever it is. You just wait for that day to wear pastel colors all year and this was your space to come do it. I don't know what brings you here today. I actually had a conversation this summer with somebody who I deeply love who I've known for most of my life uh, about this idea of believing and whether you can actually believe in this or do you have to check your intellect at the door. This is somebody that, uh, like me, was not raised in the church. He still doesn't go to church. Uh, uh, Christianity, faith is not a part of his life. And so as we've gotten older, it's just a subject that unless he wants to talk about it, we just don't talk about it very much. But this one day this summer, he's talking to me and he goes, hey, uh, I want you to know I've started reading some stuff about Jesus. I've started reading some stuff about um, Christianity. I think it's great. And I was like, well, that's, that's fantastic. That's great. He goes, I, you know, when you read Jesus' teaching, it's really great stuff. And I said, yeah. And he goes, I think I really agree with a lot of it. And I think it's like we really kind of believe basically the same stuff. And I said, that's fantastic. And he goes, you know, it's just the whole part about like a dead person coming back to life. That part I can't go with. And I said, I get it. It's, a, it's kind of a strange thing. And then he leaned forward and he goes, be honest. 
No, no one from your church is here. You don't actually believe that, do you? I said, no, I, no, I, I actually do. He said, seriously, you, I won't tell anybody. You know it's nonsense, right? It's a good story, like good over evil and hope and all that. Like, I believe, I love it, but seriously. I said, no, I, I do believe it. And he goes, I don't know how you can believe that. I don't know how you can believe that. He said, Jesus' teachings, as good as they are, he goes, when you read them, they're not actually all that unique. I mean, loving people and forgiving your enemies. And he goes, he's not the only one who talked about that. There are a lot of other great teachers who talked about it. I said, you're right, there are. He's not the only person who talked about love or forgiveness. Uh, and he said, you know, and he's actually not even all that original. And I was like, oh, okay, well, explain that one to me. And he said, well, there were a lot of other people. I don't know if you know this. There were a lot of other people at the time of Jesus, even in uh, Israel, Palestine at the time, who claimed to be the Messiah. They had followers like Jesus. He wasn't the only one going around saying that he wasn't just a good teacher, he was the Messiah. I said, yeah, I know. He goes, you know, and some of them got popular like him and some of them were actually even killed just like Jesus. And I said, I know. He goes, he's not original in his teachings. He's not original in who he claims to be as the Messiah. And I said, no, you're exactly right. I said, I just have one question for you. And he said, what's that? And I said, can you name me one of the other ones? And he said, what? And I said, can you name me one of the other so-called messiahs? He goes, well, I don't know their names. And I said, exactly. Do you know why? Because when they died, they stayed dead and nobody talked about them again. <laughs> no matter how it is you approach this day in terms of what you believe, you need to wrestle with the fact that something historical happened that first Easter and it changed the world. It is a fact that cannot be denied, no matter what you think of it. Because never before in history have a group of people made the claim that Jesus' followers made about him. When other people who claimed to be the Messiah or great teacher were, die, or were killed or when they died, their followers did what Jesus' followers did. They scatter and they run, they protect themselves. That's what human beings do. But what the earliest Christians claimed. What those original disciples who scattered claimed is they went around the Roman Empire, they went around Jerusalem, they went around Israel, Palestine with one specific claim, that Jesus of Nazareth had died and come back to life, was the savior of the world, that they had seen him, that they had talked with him, that they had interacted with him, that it wasn't just a, a thought in their mind. They didn't go around saying, my religion's better than your religion. They didn't have a religion at that point. It's really clear that the first Christians didn't believe they were starting a new religion. They were just talking about the, the fulfillment of prophecy and the Messiah. They weren't going around saying, our doctrine's better than your doctrine, so you should believe our religion, or our dogma and traditions are better than yours. They didn't have any traditions of their own. The only thing that the first Christians claimed was, he is risen. He is alive, and there is an economy of grace and salvation that has never existed in this world before. And there is not another example in human history of a group of people going out and claiming that. And they didn't go viral. They didn't get like great stuff from it. They were persecuted. They were cut off from their families. They experienced incredible hardship and most of them were killed for this claim. I've said this before, but if you are the apostle Peter who we read about here and they're about to crucify you as he was crucified upside down in Rome, 
Again, not for making doctrinal statements, but for saying that Jesus was alive, this one claim. And you're making it up because you just want a story to make the world happy in a better place. If you're making it up, you tell them before they crucify you upside down. It's a horrible way to die. And they didn't recant it. Human beings don't do this for no reason. Psychology tells us that. History tells us that. Sociology tells us that. No matter what you think of it, you have to understand that something happened on that first Easter that changed people in a way that you and I need to wrestle with. How do you understand it and how do you explain it? You see, I encountered in my early 20s Jesus. I didn't grow up thinking it. When I was a freshman in college, nobody was looking at me going, pastoral ministry, I see that in your future. Nobody was doing that. I encountered Jesus. It changed something in me. And you might go, oh, well, you, know, you needed that for these different reasons. Whatever. I understand I encountered him. But I don't just believe in my heart. I believe with my mind the more I look at it. And if that claim is real, that he is risen, and it's the basis for everything we do, we need to understand that changes our world. It changes our lives. It changes the way we live. It even changes the way we die. Nothing is the same. What do you believe? Recently, I was given uh, a story by somebody. Someone shared with me a story who's a part of this community about the power of what Easter really means, what it means to understand that even when you think you're in total darkness, that there may still be a light, as Dr. Williams learned and taught us. You just can't detect it yet. Comes from a, a new member of this community, of this congregation named Vicki. Vicki's giving me permission to share her story. She came to meet with me and to tell me a little bit about her background. And uh, Vicki, for 53 years, was married to the love of her life, Don. She met Don while he was in uh, medical school. And after some time serving in the US Navy, they decided to settle in Denton, Texas, where Don opened a practice as a family physician for almost 40 years, served in that community, working with families, seeking health. When he came to the age of retirement, they were empty nesters at that point. They had raised three daughters in Denton who had gone off into the world, and they decided that they were going to make the difficult but exciting decision to, in retirement, uh, move to a bigger city. They moved to San Antonio, which is a tumultuous thing to do at any time in life, to uproot yourself and to, uh, that's not a rip on San Antonio. It's a, <laughs> gosh, you know, it's one thing to get emails for the things you, you think you've said. I'm not ripping on San Antonio, any of you there. I'm not saying it's hard to move to San Antonio. My point is it's hard in retirement to leave whatever community you're in and move wherever else. Please don't email me about San Antonio. <laughs> or anything else, I love it, the Riverwalk, Yahoo, okay? Um, it's hard to go anywhere. Some, sometimes it would be good if I had a manuscript. Um, but it's hard to uproot, isn't it? To leave your network, your friends, your community behind. But they were excited to start in the city of San Antonio. They had a couple of friends from medical school and they were gonna reunite with them and start the next chapter of their life. But after they moved, Vicki started noticing some worrying signs in Don, and they went and got a diagnosis that was devastating. The diagnosis was Alzheimer's. That is a devastating illness for anyone, as some of you know very personally and very well. 
But for Vicki, one of the things that she had to wrestle with was that she was dealing with this devastating news without her network, without her community, without her sense of home in this new place. So she made a decision to make a second move. And they moved here to Austin. They did so for a couple of reasons. The first is one of their adult daughters lives here in town, had an apartment right in their backyard, and she could move into that apartment and uh, have family to have some sort of support network. But also because there was a care facility that offered the kind of care uh, at a really high quality that Don needed and was going to need. And they had room for him. And so she made the decision to uproot a second time and to move here. Just a couple of months after Don moved into the facility and Vicki moved into the apartment behind her daughter's house, the calendar turned to March of 2020, which is when a global pandemic set in that affected all of us, every one of us here in all kinds of ways. But one of the places most impacted were places like the space where Don was staying that went on complete lockdown the visitors were not allowed in, and that Vicki, just a very short time after Don had moved into this place, was no longer able to go visit him or to see him in person. She would call on a daily basis and talk to him, but in a very short amount of time, she realized he didn't know who he was talking to. It was really difficult, and it was lonely, and it was hard to be alone in that journey, outside of your network, uprooted. When she finally was able to go back in and visit, Don had deteriorated even though he had had very good care. And on July 5th, 2021, Don Hold passed away. Vicki talked about the darkness of losing your spouse of 53 years. She talked about the pain of not knowing how to move forward. She did talk about how her faith and Don's faith that were very real gave her a sense of comfort for him that he was now free of this disease and that in the, the hope of our faith that Easter is about, that in his death, as we say in our tradition, his life had been swallowed up by greater life. And she believed that. But so much of her pain and her loss was what did this now mean for her? How do you begin to move forward in a place you don't know? In the midst of all of that, she had begun on occasion to worship with Covenant Presbyterian Church here in Austin in our online worship. She'd never been here before, but she didn't worship every week, but just every once in a while would check in and watch the service. And as we had opened back up on campus, she was still watching one Sunday online and heard an announcement about a new members class. Now she was really clear when she met me, she was not interested in church membership. But she showed up for the first time on our campus to attend that class. And she said that her question was to wonder had God forgotten about her? Of how alone she felt, of how dark things had become. She said that she prayed as she walked into the class that God would give her a sense that he was with her, that there was hope, that there was a future. Now, if you've been to one of our new members' classes, she said she walked in and there were a lot of people there. We've had a lot of people in our new members' classes. She said that a lot of them were younger than her and a lot of them had uh, uh, significant other spouses who were there. She said as she looked, there was someone who was about her age who didn't seem to have a plus one with her. And so Vicki walked over and introduced herself and said, 
My name's Vicky, and I've never actually been here. I'm, I'm new to Austin. I came here right before the pandemic. My husband just passed away of Alzheimer's. And she said, and the woman said, I'm actually here and new to Austin in a very similar set of circumstances. Vicky said, oh, well, I'm actually living in an apartment right behind my daughter's house, and they're really the only folks I know. And this woman said, I'm living with my uh, child uh, as well, and um, I'm trying to form and make community as well. Vicky said, oh, well, what neighborhood are you in? And this woman said the name of her neighborhood, and Vicky goes, oh, that's the neighborhood we live in. So what street do you live on? The woman said the name of the street, and Vicky goes, that's the street that we live on. She said, what address are you at? <laughs> they pulled out her phone, and they compared addresses, and it turned out that this woman was living with her adult children directly across the street from where Vicky had moved in with her daughter. The woman said, maybe we should go to lunch after this class. <laughs> Vicky said, yeah, I mean, we're driving within 50 yards of each other where we go. And she said, and that became a tradition that we have enjoyed together. And she's now one of my best friends in the entire world. What's the chances, she asked, that in a city like Austin, the one person I would go and talk to is living 50 yards away? What are the mathematical chances that can happen? In 1995, Dr. Bob Williams pointed a telescope at nothing to see if total darkness was indeed totally dark or if it had light, and what he saw astounded him that darkness wasn't truly dark. It was just light we hadn't been able to detect before. That's Easter. That's Easter. That's what difference the resurrection makes. Darkness is not something that can be avoided, not for Mary Magdalene, not for the disciples, not for Jesus himself, not for Vicki, not for you, not for me. There is no religion, there is no spirituality, there is no faith that can tell you if you're good enough or follow enough rules that you can avoid the pain and the darkness of this world. If someone tells you that they've got something that can help you to do that, they are lying to you. And Christianity and Easter is not the promise that darkness is not real. Christianity and Easter is the promise that darkness will be overcome. That light is real even when it is so faint it is hard to detect. And that darkness and loss and pain will not be the end of any of our stories. So may you have hope today. For as the prophet of old wrote about Jesus, arise and shine for the light has come. Hallelujah amen. and amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would meet us in our darkness this day and shine your light. Fill us with hope to carry us on, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.